Did you say you've been working out? Yeah. Cool. Tell. Touch, tell touch us. Me. Touch you. Touch me. Touch yeah, him. Right, man. Yeah. Nice. It's going to touch you. Unfortunately, that means it's now no longer ironic when I tell people, bring it on, Scrub Lord, I'm fucking ripped. That's... It's quite not, ironic. Which admittedly is not a good thing to say at work either way. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as part of one's personal development review. <laughs> yes. um, but, but, yeah. Um, I'll get the cat face out again if you're not careful. Oh, fucking do it. Yeah, I'm that not- that was weird. <laughs> What's the cat face about? What's the cat face about? Yeah, how, how did you get that? He's got a big cat's face. He's got the body of a cat and the face of a cat. And he flies through the air because he's got a cat face. The cat face. I have not heard that in like 10 years. Hello and welcome to World One Stage One. I'm Simon, and joining me as ever are Rob. What up? Jack. Greetings. And Irish. Howdy. And my cat. Hello. 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 He's not saying anything, he's just sitting by the microphone on the I was hoping if I said that, then like the listeners would think that that was <laughs> you saying hello to Katie and then just me just going, hello. <laughs> Is it a cat face? Because don't, cat face. don't say that word. <laughs> what word? Uh, cat face. Okay. So I have been known to sing that song on my cat. Oh, he does have a cat face. <laughs> he does, and he has the face of a cat and the body of a cat. Does he fly through the air? No, I changed the lyrics there a little bit. Uh, I say he doesn't fly through the air because he lives in a world governed by physics. Cat face. <laughs> <laughs> Crushing his dreams with science. He's left. He's clearly disgusted by this. Anyway. So, who went to see the, to the cinema? Damn. Well, yeah. not us. Yeah. All that's happened in the meantime between the last episode is that Rob went and smoked and pissed. I did. It was great. It was eventful. <laughs> it was drama. So it was like going to the Maybe cinema. Maybe tell us about that. Sure, so I, I went outside and, you know... No, I didn't piss outside, listeners. So you pissed inside, listeners? Yes, listeners. Christ. No, I pissed inside, listeners. No, it's just stop. Please. I know what's happening. Really? No. <laughs> what's that like? I don't know. What are we talking about? I don't really know at the moment. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm, I'm guessing we don't have any preamble for this show. This is going to be a problem with doing two episodes back to back. Is that we won't have preamble because we'll basically just blow our load on the first one. We've managed before. Have we? Yeah, this isn't the first time we've done back to back. Wait, we don't do back to back. Well, we. I mean, it's, there's nothing. There's nothing lost by like. You know, 
saying that we do back to back. No, you know, it's fine. It's a, it's a, it's a secret. Yeah. Of our trade. Last week. Last week. Mm. Where are we going with this? All that's happened since last week is Rob went outside and pissed and smoked. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> what a great week. I've, I've been playing XCOM too. <gasps> we did say something. Simon, well done. Wait, do you mean literally between <laughs> last episode and now? Is that where you went? I, I mean, five minutes you were away. In the last week, I've been playing XCOM 2. Gotcha. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Can you tell us what it's like, please? Is it good? Well, it is very good, yes. Um, I basically marathoned it the whole weekend when it came out, and I beat the campaign on easy uh, that weekend. Nice. I've now started a Commander Difficulty Iron Man playthrough, which is very different. (laughs) Is it difficult? (laughs) I love Iron Man. Oh, God, yes. Yay. It is difficult. It is murderously difficult. Basically, on on Rookie, on Easy, it's not that hard. I finished the whole campaign and lost six guys. It was pretty easy. Okay. On Commander Difficulty and Iron Man, I lost that many guys in three missions. Wow. So uh, the difficulty ramps up quite a lot. I'm sure it'll work out in the end. You'll be all right, and we'll win Earth back. <laughs> well, funnily enough, the setup for XCOM 2 is that we didn't win yes. in XCOM 1. That is true. We they, are on the back finalized their invasion. The game is so murderously difficult that they're like, yeah, yeah, you may have beaten it, but how many times did you not beat it compared to that one time you beat it? <laughs> That's true. So the canon ending is, yeah, you didn't beat it. And here's the man from How To to explain what to do. <laughs> so yes, basically XCOM, uh, the, the the remake, the reboot, Enemy, uh, Enemy Unknown. Uh, I, I assume we've all played that by now. I haven't. Oh well, it's fantastic. I don't think I even own it. Oh, I might do. I think I do. I'm fairly it's certain great. I do. I just haven't played it. Okay, but it's it's a reimagining of the original XCOM games. You are the commander of XCOM, Earth's last line of defense against an invading alien force, and it plays out. Uh, turn-based strategy, you are in a sort of isometric viewpoint of whatever environment here on Earth, be it a small town, a city, the countryside, what have you. Very, very cover-based, ending your turn in cover and preferably on Overwatch. Highly recommended. Are you sure it isn't a squad-based shooter set in the 50s? I'm pretty sure, because that's the... I'm trying to remember the subtitle of that one, but that was an XCOM game that came out after XCOM Enemy Unknown. Oh, okay. Huh. And wasn't as good. Classified. Declassified? Yes. Declassified, that sounds right. That was, that was the shooter set in the same universe. Gotcha. But no, this is near future, alien invasion, turn-based, isometric, squad-based. It is squad-based. Zero. And... It's very driven around the idea of churn of your troops. You know, you, they start as rookies. As they perform in the field, they, they level up and also specialize into different types of troops. So you have your, your support specialists, your heavy gunners, your, your fast recon guys, your snipers. And they have skill trees that level up as you go through them as well. But they're quite likely to die or get seriously injured. Very likely. So a lot of the time you're churning through troops, replacing experienced guys with shit-ass rookies who don't know what end of the gun to point at the enemy. 
So on any given mission, you're quite likely to have a couple of your, your A team, but most of your A team will have died on the last mission or have been injured. So you'll have a couple of your B team and some raw recruits. And you're desperately trying to keep them skilled and equipped enough whilst preventing the world from going into absolute panic, losing faith in you and abandoning you uh, to try and fight the overrunning aliens. So you're constantly trying to manage the fear of the different countries as well, uh, but you can only be in so many places at the same time. So you have to choose sometimes, well, do you know what? I might just let Africa burn because I can't pull them back from the brink. They're panicked. They're about to abandon me. I'm going to focus on Asia because I could still actually maintain their support of me. And can I just say, this is the first element of this game uh, that provides stakes in uh, an investment. That's number one. Sorry, Simon, carry on. I would say the first element is the fact that you, you get attached to your guys and then they die. Oh, I was going to say that next, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> bigger picture, bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But um, yeah, absolutely. The attachment that you gain to those to, to your to your guys as you send them forth, and oh, the despair when they go down in a heroic last stand, and or sometimes not. Sometimes yeah. they just get melted, <laughs> or sometimes they drop a grenade. Yeah. So there's your tactical game on the ground, there's the grand strategy of which threats you're going to confront and which you're going to ignore, as well as base building. You have to build up different types of facilities, research different technologies in different orders. So it's many, many different games all at once, basically, all playing towards the end game of finding the aliens, counterattacking, and driving them off Earth. (laughs) Uh, Except it doesn't work out, and so XCOM 2 comes about. XCOM 2 is it's a very similar game to Enemy Unknown, except you don't have a headquarters. Your base is mobile. You're in the Avenger, which is it's a big helicarrier, basically, cool. which can move around the Earth. So you don't have the support of the countries of the Earth because they've all been taken over by Advent, the alien human alliance, Ooh. represented by the Speaker who is a human-appearing individual. And so you don't have to manage a fleet of UFO interceptors because the UFOs aren't invading, they're here. You don't have to manage a set of early warning satellites because they're already here. What you do have to do is make contact with resistance cells all around the world and build a radio communications network so you can stay in touch with them. Uh, you have to upgrade the Avenger to do all the research and, you know, the facility building and research game is still very much there. So you do still have to decide which threats to confront and which to ignore. In this, you get wind of something called the Avatar Project, which is what the aliens are working on here on Earth. You don't know what it is. You just know if they're working on it and it's that important, it can't be good. Yeah. So you you get presented with these critical missions that could hinder the Avatar project, but you're always presented with a choice between two or three missions that will lead to dark events. Now, dark events may just be, it's harder to recruit for a month because they're watching your um, intake centers, or they've got new research, so they're going to have poison ammo. Uh, 
And a dark event may be they add two to the Doom Clock, which is the tracker that's building up to the Avatar project completing. Uh, oh, wow. So you have to decide which consequence you're willing to face. Ooh, I love it. It's brilliant. Uh, the troops are highly customizable in this, much more so than in XCOM, partly because there's the mechanics for it, so you can... Uh, give them different hats, give them different face paints, uh, color everything, give them textures. But also because XCOM 2 supports Steam Workshop mods out of the box. Ah, so I have wow. psionic troops who have, you know, mental powers that look like Jack from Mass Effect, literally, all straight down to the tattoos. Awesome. Uh, I've got a ranger who has Hawk's Bloodstripe from Dragon Age across their nose awesome. because I can. It's it's really, really cool because you're a paramilitary rebel force so you can really play with how they look. That's cool. I like and that. That's amazing and it still seems to fit. That's excellent. It to, really does fit. It's perfectly suitable. To talk shop for a second, Simon, and as I recently purchased a, a brand new laptop, what are the sort of specs like? What, what do you have to have to make this work properly? Right. Um... I would wait and see, because whilst the game is great, yeah, it's got performance issues, big ass performance issues. As you know, I'm I'm running an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM and twin 970s SLI, so I've got serious GPU um, power going on here, and it stutters. It it's not running well. Oh, okay. Wow. It should be. It's not that the graphics engine is actually that taxing. It's just that there's a lot of optimization issues with the code at the moment. I see. So their specs are optimistic at best in its current state. But it shouldn't be too taxing. I'm just trying to work out what the specs are. I need to find a listing somewhere. Well, um... but... um. It, it's it's hard to get it running performant at the moment, but at the same time, it's a turn-based game. So the fact that there are uh, slowdowns and frame rate drops don't actually affect the playability. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If that makes sense, yeah, it, it, it does, affects so. the, the 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 presentation of the game, but not the playability of the game. Uh, you should have. Is this XCOM 2? Yes. So your recommended is like a, a 3 gigahertz chip, 8 gigs of RAM, and a, a G4770 or better. Or if you're a Radeon person, a 7970 or better. Nice. So those, that's the recommended specs. That's actually not that punishing. No. But you won't get great performance on that until it's been patched. Ooh. But then I was going to say, there are oft, oft patches that descend. Just, just give it a mo. Mm. Give it a mo. Yeah. It's always the same, like with the Total War games. That's mm. I always found you always have to wait for the oh, just to come out before they fix a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Shameful display. Yeah, but um, you know, oh, that's really cool. I, I I look forward to delving into that world once again. Like I say, I love I love a game with the, the decisions uh, that obviously matter, um, and the attachments that you, you build yourself. What I like. Yeah, interesting. Yes, there will be troops that become your your favourites. Like I am dreading the death of my ranger, um, uh, Iron Maiden, 
is her nickname. They they will be given nicknames by the system automatically. You can change them, but they will earn them for themselves yeah. as well. Because she was one of my starting troops in my rookie playthrough. Yeah. And what you can do in XCOM 2 is save a troop that you like to the oh. character pool, and then they can be randomly recruited into future games. Yeah, that's so cool. So she was... She was with me through the whole campaign, literally from the first mission to the last mission. She was on the last mission and helped save Earth. And she's been randomly recruited back into XCOM again in my Iron Man playthrough. So I've become an order of magnitude more attached to her than anyone else in my squad, because I don't know the rest of them. They're all random. But Iron Maiden matters. And the day she dies, I'm going to... Be uh, inconsolable. <laughs> oh, It'll man. be a sad day. And she will die because she's a ranger. Yeah. Rangers are amazing. And they've been given an upgrade in this one. They, they now have a sword. Ooh. Which you can upgrade to like an energy sword that sets them on fire. Oh, man. Which is devastating. But you do have to run up to close combat range to use it. Yeah. Not generally a good idea. I was going to say. Not against some of these aliens, no. <laughs> So, Simon, uh, I mean, obviously you have Iron Maiden, but have you, come on, before you, obviously, like, tell us, have there been any epic character moments from play, from other characters that you did like that you've lost? Oh, yeah, no, uh, one of the, the epic, epic losses was Fireball. Oh. Uh, Fireball was a heavy weapon grenadier who just plasma grenades everywhere, mm-hmm. basically. One of the new systems in XCOM 2 is you can call down evac uh, where you want and when you want in some missions. Nice. And uh, it was a vital dark events mission. It absolutely could not fail. And everyone was ready to evac except Fireball, who was on covering fire. So I left him behind. Oh, like in his last turn, he was laying down grenades to keep people from getting close to the Sky Ranger as everyone charged aboard with the VIP. And, you know, he just stood behind cover, pumping out explosives to cover their retreat. And they got the package home and left Fireball behind. Oh, no. That, that was one of my big last stand moments. What? And then the, the very next mission. Because one of the really nice touches in this, you are public enemy number one. Of course. And there are billboards <gasps> around the, the city, and they have sort of wanted, dead or alive type things. <laughs> and there was Fireball's face on a big billboard oh, as they went into the next mission. <laughs> that's sad. No, no. That, Hilarious. That, we know he, he, that, it meant he was still out. Yeah, yeah but I was going to say, what happens if you leave them alone? Does it leave them behind? Does it say you left someone behind and you can't get them anymore? Yeah. yeah. It says left behind. Oh, but we don't MIA. I like to think he survived. And he's still making a nuisance of himself. <laughs> it's really good at that. Um, you see these wanted posters of your great, your, your, it tends to be your highest ranked characters. So it's the ones you'll probably become attached to. Yeah. And even the menu screen in the foreground is one of your characters behind cover looking over at some aliens in a different setting, you know, depending on it each time it loads. Oh, that's so cool. But it's always your dudes. Ah, your dudes. So it's your game. It's personalized. You know, that's my sniper. That's my heavy weapons dude. It's, uh, it's very cool in getting you attached to them and then taking them away from you. I love the your dudes concept in video games. Your and dudes, tabletop games. Killing my dudes. 
It's when, it's when Necromunda was always a great thing. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I want to go back and play uh, Any Man Known. I love that game as well. Yeah. There are some great mods for XCOM 2 as well from the, the really cool stuff like Jack's tattoos from Mass Effect and stuff. Yeah. Through to just really useful little features. You know, the, the community is already improving the game. <laughs> like I was saying, there's this evac. You get into the right area and you hit the evac button and a rope drops down and you just whisk up off the top of the screen. But you have to do it turn by turn, so it's like, okay, I've gotten everyone into the evac zone, now you, evac. Yeah. Animation plays, you, evac, animation plays. One of the first mods I downloaded was an evac all button, which just takes everyone in the evac area at the same time. Yeah. So you hit the button and like six ropes drop down, six guys grab the ropes and six guys whiff off into the sky. (laughs) It's really cool. That is super And saves a lot of time. I was going to, but that's, and that's for it. players of XCOM, Overwatch all, <laughs> all characters capable of going into Overwatch do so immediately at their current location. Nice. That's a really quick response for modders. That's really fast to have stuff out already. I mean, I get the they've feeling. made it very moddable. Very, very moddable. <laughs> they move. They work quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and without there's a lot of content already. <laughs> Like, day one, there were three, um, and that was because the guys who made the Long War mod for the first XCOM had been given early access because they, the devs were like, you're good, set the standard. <laughs> so they'd invented a new alien type, a new weapon type, that sort of thing. Oh, so there were like three mods available on day one. Day two, there was like 100. Wow. Damn. It's very moddable. I like that. Does it come with its own toolkit, or is it something they can just do? Uh, there's no toolkit, but it's it's written in um, a very open language, very open files. Nothing's obscured, so you can go in and change all the stats and write in new things very, very easily. Great. That's cool. It's always a good sign, isn't it, when yeah. they're not uh, afraid to allow communities like that to build. Yeah, well, they looked at the long war for XCOM and went, holy shit, mods for XCOM games are amazing. Yes. Let's make sure XCOM 2 is really moddable. So we get more of this and, like, less restrictions on it. Mm-hmm. More replay Exactly. Value. Yeah. I'm, li- I'm liking that. I'm liking that a lot. <laughs> so so from one near future universe where there's incredible technology. I was, I was about to say, Simon, <laughs> what was the name of your, your favorite character? In Iron Maiden? Yeah, Iron Maiden. Like a, like a, like a lady made out of metal. Yep. Yeah. Segway. Segway. <laughs> it's a Segway. I'll take it. It's not as good as Ghosts. Straight to the point. It was a bit hammy. Ghosts was luck. <laughs> it was, that was, I, you know, I'm never going to do better than that. <laughs> it was great. I've got to make my peace with that. Goodness. I'll just so, so if yeah. you remember the segue from last week, that applies here too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> remember that. Then come. Yeah. That's, that's more, great. more of that. More of that, please. Yes. As for last week, just you know, for now. So, what are we talking about? Nothing. Okay. None of great. us remember. No one knows. <laughs> no one knows. We're talking about Iron Maidens, the medieval torture device. Um, <laughs> it, it, cool. F- what else can we say? <laughs> named a band after them. They did name a band. Yeah, the Iron Maiden itself did that. Yeah, it's a sentient medieval torture device. Yeah, that's it came, scary. It came that's really scary. It, it, it just it just turned up at Bruce Dickinson's house and was like, "You'll name a band after me." I don't know what it sounds like that, but, but we're getting oh, really I, off topic. That's really strange. Um, sorry. 
Simon? Yes? Can you please help us to get out of this fucking pit of stupidity? Here's a shovel. Dig up. So, <laughs> last week we were talking about something that started in 1991, so this week let's talk about something that started in 1991. Ah, uh, relevance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's... that's- Ooh, that's cool. We did that by accident. <laughs> yeah, something else that happened. We picked these two. <laughs> we picked these two topics like out of a hat, essentially. Uh, yeah, so that was a nice coincidence. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes, in 1991, a man named Masamune Shiro, who is a mysterious and an enigmatic we, creator, we assume a man. Well, that's true. Yeah, it's a very good point. And it, a person who is an enigmatic, <laughs> and mysterious creator. We assume. A I'm, person. I'm going. <laughs> Could be I mean, a dolphin. I'm, I've got the theory that it's a dolphin. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Could be a dolphin. Yeah. Certainly is very keen on representing dolphins and, uh, and, in in their work and their genitals. And their genitals. Uh, but Masamune Shiro created a manga called Ghost in the Shell. I've got it upstairs. Although uh, its title in Japanese, which I won't attempt to pronounce, translates literally to Mobile Armored Riot Police, which is a slightly different kind of a name. Yeah, yeah. It does what it sort of says on the tin, sort of. Yeah, le- less, less philosophical yeah. in the original See, Japanese that, title. That particular title makes you think of stuff like AD Police. Or uh, mobile, uh, what's it, uh, Tank Police. Dominion Tank Police, yeah. yeah. Which uh, Masamune Shiro... Also wrote. He did do Tank Please, yes. He did, yeah. 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 And Appleseed oh, Tank as well. We're not here to talk about Tank Police, but go and check out Tank Police, it's brilliant. Yeah, he wrote Dominion and Appleseed, which were also both about futuristic law enforcement using heavy armor and tanks. Yep. It's kind of a theme. And then he came along with Ghost in the Shell, which was about, well, futuristic law enforcement using robots and tanks and cyborgs. And it got a bit philosophical all of a sudden, got, in a way that yeah. Dominion Tank Police never did. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, okay, that's fair enough to say. Appleseed did a little bit, Dominion didn't. Yeah, I think Dominion, the closest it came, it didn't really do the whole measure of a man thing. It was more sort of a, um, unless you really look for it in terms of like the, the police brutality thing, and it is essentially looking at a fascist uh, police state. But as a comedy. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's good yucks to be found in there. Yeah, um, with grenade golf and so on. Um, but yes, we're here to talk about Ghost in the Shell, which definitely had philosophy out the goddamn robotic wazoo. <laughs> oh, yes, because uh, it follows Public Security Section 9, who are a, a, a police division formed primarily of former military officers who were cyberized. They have, to a greater or lesser extent, a cyborg-enhanced body. And definitely the, the core of this unit are Motoko Kusanagi, the major, and Bato, a former ranger, both of whom are 100% cyberized. The only human part left is the brain inside a case inside the head of the cyborg body. Yep. And uh, they're pretty damn cool. I'm just going to put that out there. I don't know if we're going to get any disagreements here. No, they're pretty None awesome. Me. They're all pretty rad. They are goddamn awesome. They are, because they are cyborgs, they are essentially walking mini tanks. 
It's it's like mech combat in a lot of anime, but it's just them. They're fast as a car. They can jump ridiculous distances. Uh, they're uh, their strength is superhuman. Their reflexes are superhuman. Their weight is superhuman. Uh, their weight is superhuman, except when it isn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> their, their weight seems to vary by plot need. Like, if they need to jump up onto a tin roof, they're fine. Uh, but if they need to make a dent in the ground when they land, they will. Yeah, It's, rule of, it's rule slightly of inconsistent. It's, it's the rule of what looks awesome. <laughs> yes. They do go rule of cool. And the Ghost in the Shell universe is one in which the internet is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. There is mesh Wi-Fi everywhere. Everyone is connected all of the time through implants in their brains. So when it came to being animated, it saved a lot of money as characters could talk directly into each other's heads without moving their mouths. Super cool move. Yeah, smart move as well. It's it's a lot better Very than smart. hiding mouth behind hands or basketballs. Yeah, it's usually pointed uh, to the tips of uh, of fingers like that, yeah. isn't it? Or, or you'll yeah. just have it pan to the person they're talking to whilst they talk. Yes, yeah. Slow, yeah. yeah, slow pan across. Yeah, but Ghost in the Shell at least does the thing where it has a slightly tinny quality to the voice to make you understand that they are sort of it's it's almost like robotic telepathy. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it makes the effort. Yeah. Mm. So. We're talking primarily about the movie, yes? Uh, I, I think we should probably mostly talk about the Ghost in the Shell movie. I will do my best to yeah. remember it. Because <laughs> the, the manga is, is very much its own thing. Yeah. It's, it's got a, a definitely more of a sense of humour than the film. And I think most of our audience will probably be, if not more familiar with Ghost in the Shell than movie, it, it's a lot more ac- well, accessible, it's a lot more available for people than the manga is. It is also Definitely. very much a gateway anime for a lot of people. Oh my god, yeah. like it is a really popular one. I don't think I've ever seen... You actually, I don't think I've ever seen Ghost in the Shell, the manga, available in like a bookshop anywhere around here. To the point that... I, I have. I bought it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's but rare. It, it, it is rare. I mean, literally, I, film. I bought my copy in, in Japan, like at the airport before leaving Japan. The last thing I bought was Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, that's, yeah, I had to go to the source. <laughs> <laughs> but the film was definitely regarded as accessible, so much so that it was one of the sort of um, the, the spearheads of manga trying to push anime in the West. Yeah. Uh, Ghost in the Shell and Akira really are the two yeah. big spearheads that got cinematic release in America and the UK. And you can see why. They are just, oh, just divine, next-level shit. And, I mean, not only are they masterpieces, they're masterpieces whose core concept is very compatible with Western film-going. Ghost in the Shell, for example, is essentially, whilst there is this deep core of philosophy underneath it, it's a police procedural action movie. About sort of information crimes and, Yeah. yeah... There, there is a cybercrime, and here comes this elite unit of cyborgs to solve it. And bring them back, guys. Not quite so much a broad unit in the film. They, they pared down the cast somewhat. Hmm. There's no Ishikawa, there's no um, Aramaki. Oh, no, Aramaki's, Aramaki's there. He is in there. Uh, and so is Togusa. 
because uh, Togusa is very important yes. to the film. He's he's the non-cyberized element because, as Matoko says, you know, if you over-specialize, you breed in weakness. He's there to react differently because everyone else is a cyborg and he has just a brain implant. Other than like, that, he's purely human. Yeah, he's like you know the average Joe on the street. He has the brain implants, but that is just about it. I think. Um, should, we, should we go down the cast list? Yeah, let's do yeah. that. So, I mean, you've got the, we've talked on the, the major and batter. We have the full, full cyberized bodies. You've got Togus, who just has the regular brain implants. Uh, characters who don't necessarily turn up in the movie, but they are still part of the unit. Uh, Ishikawa and Togus uh, both turn up in the film. So, yes. let's let's deal with them first. Ishikawa is the the support guy. Yeah. He's, he's not out in the field, he's not a fighter, but he's a, an expert hacker and information dude. He, he's part of the older guard, he's got his, his robotic beard. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a thing in like, the series of just, when he goes to bed, he takes his beard off. Although it's, it's not actually in the series, it's in the after yes. credits, it's, it's comedy not animation. Canon. He doesn't have a robot beard. <coughs> he totally has a robot beard. Totes. <coughs> and the team is headed up by Chief Aramaki. Old monkey face himself. He is a little little monkey looking dude with a big crazy with white crazy hair. hair. Yeah, and he's a political genius. That's his job. He's the guy who deals with all the high end power. He deals with the prime minister. He deals with secretaries of state. He gets the funding and he gets the clearance to let Section Nine do what they do. And he gets them not shut down. Well, most of the time. Yes, uh, there's probably a lot of slot lines in Yitzhak where they do get shut down briefly. There's a couple. Yeah. Um, there are also characters that don't turn up in the movie who are quite interesting, but I can understand why they were cut out, uh, like Saito. Saito is the he is in the film, actually. Really? He's not a big part of it, but he's in, towards the end of the film, when they're uh, fighting the big multiped, he's in one of the helicopters overhead. Oh, cool! I didn't. But know he that. is their sniper. He has an eye implant that links to satellites for long-range targeting, so he can hit things he can't even see. I remember that. And you know, uh, augmented arms to hold steady aim and everything. He's, 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 he's also former military. He's the he is badass. Um, you've got Paz. Pazu, yes, the-, the the dodgy one, yes. Oh, the man with a pass. Oh, I, I keep getting mixed up between Paz and Boma. Um, Paz is the, he's the sneaky sort of... Um, Slightly rat-faced, likes wise. using knives, it's very streetwise. He, he seems to know everyone. He, he's got the connections and the contacts. Yeah, he's like the man on the inside. You get the feeling he's not ex-military, you get the feeling he's ex-con. Yeah, very, very definitely. And, and the degree to which his crimes are, you know mentioned is, is sort of left intentionally vague because um, I think if they really 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 went balls to the wall with what he is or could be we probably wouldn't see him as a good guy no probably not and, and then there is Bomar who I mean Bomar certainly got excluded from the film because he's basically Bato he is but like from a very different angle I think Bomar's story is is it's it's a very interesting story, but it's not one that needs to be told within the confines of the movie. Um, yeah. He is more to do with the nature of cyberization, which is more of a philosophical thing, and it's a lot of what Ghost in the Shell is about, like the if you fully cyberize yourself, at what point do you stop being human? At what point does machine become more important, etc.? Because 
um, Boma became a cyborg at a, was it at a young age or the, I forget now. All we know, it, uh, what we know from his story that is revealed, not necessarily that he was young, but he was a virgin at the time. Yeah. Uh, because there is a whole storyline about a virus that affects people and the only immunity is virginity and uh, he is unaffected uh, uh, because it, it's an aspect of humanity that can't be lost and it's a, it's a very philosophical thing but yeah. yeah, he was cyberized before he was de-virginized and in the Ghost in the Shell world apparently that is a transformative event who knew? Yeah, I mean, psychologically speaking, I, I guess you could potentially make that argument. I mean, especially in, in certain societies. Yes. Uh, but in terms of the film, he is former military, big, cyberized guy. It would be very hard to differentiate him from Bato without going into his storyline. Yes. He's, He's another one that's character. hard to see as a good guy when you get into the depths of it as well. Uh, in the series, there is a great moment that defines him for me. Uh, he's asked to solve a problem. Later in the episode, there's a report of a fatal car accident on the highway in which the problem has died, and you see Bomar walking into the underground garage of public security, handing a set of keys to the attendant and just saying, lose these. Ooh, because he's, he's a big, indestructible block of a man. So um, he can survive a car wreck. Yeah. He's the wet work man. But he's kind of the big, quiet guy. He is the big quiet guy who likes pizza. Yeah, hangs out with Paz a lot, I believe. Yes, yeah. they, they do hang out together, which is why, you know, it's hard to see either of them as really the good guys. Yeah. But they're not in the film. Yeah. Neither are the Tachikomas. No, which is a real shame, because the Tachikomas are one of the best things about the Ghost in the Shell universe. They are, but it was... Or the, the Fuchikomas in the book. Yes, and the whatever the fuck it is in the, in the movie, the, the giant multiped. Um, I guess well, the giant multipeds get everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be difficult to do. I mean, the Ghost in the Shell movie is definitely very serious business, uh, and it would probably be difficult yes. to put the Tachikomas in that. They are, but in the world of Ghost in the Shell, uh, Tachikomas are one-man-sized autonomous tanks. Uh, tanks in the Ghost in the Shell universe are multipeds. They have generally six limbs, uh, which makes them very stable. Uh, also, but puts them on uh, good on rough terrain, and the Tachikomas are small enough and light enough that they can use uh, wires to be aerial, so they can climb buildings and swing under bridges, that sort of thing. They're spiders. They are entirely based on jumping spiders. That's where they're right, right down to like from. the build and everything. Yep. They have uh, the, the torso, the thorax, the abdomen, which is a, a secured cockpit in which they're pilot drives, basically. And they have a big cannon on the front. Yep, yes, I recognise those. And a couple of claws with little machine guns. And, and little eyes on, on swivelly, swivelly balls. All around them. Yep. And their personalities are childlike, and they are programmed to see the world as a video game in which it's important to gain XP points. So they have to go and investigate things and learn things to get XP. Oh god, I relate to them. They're so... Fucking adorable. Uh, but, I mean, again, we're mostly going to be talking about the movie, but there is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment in uh, Standalone Complex, the TV series, uh, where they are taken out on deployment to help take down an anti-tank helicopter. Mm -hmm. Several anti-tank Several anti-tank helicopters. And as one of them points out, they are tanks. So they say, Mr. Battle, who 
those are anti-tank helicopters. Yes. Does that make them our natural predator? <laughs> I, I, I guess you could put it that, that way. Oh. Mr. Bato, we all have stomach aches and can't come to work today. I just, oh, I love those little guys. It's the way Bato just turns to him and just like, what stomach? <laughs> <laughs> the touch covers are amazing. Yeah. But broadly speaking, the film focuses on the Major, Bato, and Togusa, yeah. who are sort of that core of the team. Uh, the Major starts the film. This is one of my fun, favorite bits of trivia about um, Ghost in the Shell. Ooh, okay. It, it got censored a little bit when it was translated to the UK. Okay, go. The film opens with a conversation between Cyberbrains. Uh, Bato and the Major talking while she's on a rooftop. And Bato asks her, what's with all the noise in your brain today? And I actually forget what her answer is in English. Hmm. Um, it's, it's something like, uh, I, I guess I'm not feeling settled or something. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese, she actually says, I guess it's my time of the month. Huh. Which opens up immediately with her making a dark joke about the fact she isn't a biological woman anymore. Yeah. Huh. That's... That got cut out for Western audiences. Yeah. So already, you basically, like, from the get-go, you've got this whole humanity, where does it end, where does it begin, shtick. Um, what a cyberized body could mean, and, oh, wow, right from the get-go. And whilst you're still processing that line, she jumps off the roof and turns invisible, because it's Ghost in the Shell, and hardcore action scenes are going to be throughout this film. Because then brains explode, and, and oh, it's awesome. And submachine guns pop out of briefcases. And oh, the briefcase guns. Oh, the briefcase guns. Like so we open with a big hardcore action scene, showing us how hyper-competent Section 9 are. Yep. Because it's important you know these guys are badass. I forget exactly who it is they're taking down. It's like a, it's a trade of some sort of uh, nondescript information going on. Yeah, I, I don't think it's gone into a great it, deal it because it's not that important. Yeah. It's just, it's literally an action scene to open the film with, establish how hyper-competent they are, establish the level at which they operate. Uh, and then we move into the plot, yep. which is the puppet master. I think who... the puppet master is the plot. Yeah. Project twenty five oh one has gone missing. And what is Project twenty five oh one? Project twenty five oh one is an AI. Now, now, if an AI goes missing, you can probably get in a world where everyone is online all the time through their brain. You can probably assume that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Little bit. So, this kind of brain-to-brain cybercrime is exactly what Section 9 are there to counter. And they believe that basically 2501 was stolen. So, the, the investigation is set up as tracking down this hacker who has stolen Project 2501. Yeah. Uh, and the investigation 
trying to remember exactly how we get there, but it leads very quickly to a garbage man. Yes. It's via um, the, basically yeah. There's like a, an assassin. There's a chase through over rooftops. It's a kick-ass fight in in the rain. Well, not in the rain, but in like the sort of ankle-high water. So a storm drain, I think. Yeah, very, very John Woo. All he needed was doves. Very. It may even have had doves. I think it certainly had pigeons. Yes, yes. pigeons. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he's been making calls all along his route from his garbage truck. And these connections have been the hacker's work. Basically, he's been, he might be the hacker uh, or he might be a relay for the hacker. So they want to chase this guy down. And when they find him and take him in for questioning, they realize that basically he's been completely erased as a human being. There's nothing left of him there. They start asking him very basic questions about his past, which he, to his own horror, can't answer. But they show him a photo of his wife, I think it is, and he's just like crying, looking at it, going, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Mm. And um, uh, so it's clear that some hacker has overridden his brain, wiped him out, and just put him on sort of autopilot to do his work for him. And again, we get into the nature of what is even left of humanity at this point in this society. When a mind is basically broken down to data and can be shifted broken, deleted, altered at will. Yeah. That kind of violation is trivial to the right criminal. Yeah. <coughs> Not even necessarily criminal, but sort of a uh, new life form. Hmm. Well, in, in, in the, the film's yeah. instance, but uh, in general, a criminal can do it yes. too. <laughs> kind of the crux of the series, uh, I suppose, yeah. And it's the questions that Motoko starts to ask about this, about ghost hacking, about personality, about spirit, and about soul, the ghost in the shell, that really takes her over. And she makes the observation, she's never seen her own brain. Yeah. It's the only part of her that's real, and it's the only part of her she can't prove exists. Ooh. Oh, that is weird. That is weird. So, yeah, and uh, vexed. I believe they also, they do in, in universe use the word specifically ghost to refer to like, it, it's not, it's not quite soul. It's more like, um, the human spirit, yeah, the, the spark of humanity. Yes. And it's not clear precisely what ghost is because when you're diving in someone's brain, which is where, uh, it, because their experience is already coming from artificial sources. They're seeing through cameras there. Their experience is completely virtual. There is no difference in perception between the real world and the virtual world to these cyber agents. Mm. So they dive into people's minds and they can explore inside computer networks or someone's mind with equal ease. But there is a reference to something called the ghost line which is hard or taboo to dive beyond. It's not made entirely clear ever in Ghost in the Shell the significance of the ghost line. So this is a world where you'll see people with um, literal firewalls around their necks so that they can make connections to other people's brains without risk of uh, back channel. Mm. Uh, it's, It's a 
very high-tech cyberpunk world, uh, you'll see influence taken in a lot of sci-fi that came later, especially things like The Matrix from oh, this yeah, film. Yes. Just trying to figure out where we get to, because then we get from the, the the garbage guy. I believe the the the, the puppet master, the project, essentially just walks in front of a car. Yes, um, because it's taken over a a body, yeah, uh, presumably a robot body, gynoid or gynoid. I never never uh, pronounce it. Gynoid, yeah, yeah. Um, and and just gets run over, and so gets taken in as evidence. Well, this this random body does. Yeah. Uh, I'm absolutely trying to find a synopsis so I can get the order of the scenes <laughs> in my head. Basically, I'm just going to point out because this is a complicated film. Oh god, it really is. It's, the fucking puppet master's voice is one of the most hauntingly horrifying things from my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> it's. The idea is literally just it, it makes it it makes the effort to open its body's mouth when it talks, but that's it. It literally just opens its mouth, yeah, and then speaks into everyone's mind <laughs> as this horrifying deep voice with this lots of sort of weird static in the back of it. Mm. And then when it's done, shuts the mouth. So it's not opening and closing its mouth. It is literally just open and shut. Like, oh, it's so unsettling. So uncanny valley. Uh, I've just realized we actually get a very important scene before the car accident. Oh? One of the pivotal scenes in the movie for me, uh, and that's the major diving. Oh, going for a swim. Yes. So after, uh, after they've found the garbage man, and also after Section 9 has made an assault against the wrong man, there is a, there is a scene of um, Section 9 moving against a guy who turns out to be completely innocent. Yep. It's just misdirection. We cut to Bato and the Major kicking back on a yacht as the Major goes diving. Uh, just as you do, swimming, except she's a cyborg. And as Bato points out, your body would sink like a stone if those flotation devices failed. What would you do then? And she just very calmly replies, I guess I'd die. Huh. Yep. It's also the conversation in which they observe that they don't own their bodies. That retirement would mean giving back government property and there wouldn't be a lot left. It would literally just be a, you'd be a brain in a jar. Which does yep. end well, usually. Although the government owns the jar, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, an aspect there of humanity and also of in, indentured servitude, as it were. Because mm, they don't They're age, not free. so they can't really retire or die of old age. They'll just keep going. And they have no freedom. Ugh. And it's also key because she does speak... Right at the end of that, she gets distant and wistful, and her voice changes. I can't remember the exact line she says on the boat, but it's that first hint of another voice coming through Matoko's mouth. Yeah, the, of the sort of the person that she was before she was the major. Or the person that she will be by the end of the film. Well, yeah, rebirth and whatnot. And she's surprised... Uh, she's, she seems surprised herself to hear that voice coming out of her. Yeah. Which is significant. Then we see the woman getting um, run over and then waking up in a Section 9 laboratory. Yeah. 
and it seems to have no brain. It seems to be entirely robotic, but they see what looks like a ghost. So not only does it have an, an artificial intelligence, but it appears to essentially have an artificial soul as well. That seems to be what they're, they're reading. Yeah. And this is also when a sort of side plot comes up, which is that uh, a member of Section 6, which is an international <coughs> treaties um, body in public security, comes and visits and has a look at uh, this body. And uh, they noticed that the, the, the weight sensors of his car showed a couple of tons. Oh. Uh, which he certainly doesn't weigh. Uh, we've also seen, of course, Section 9 agents turning invisible, and we know that cyborgs are very heavy, so he was bringing armed support and not letting anyone know. Kind of, How suspicious. Kind of a dick move, really. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and he IDs the body as the puppet master. And claims that as the puppet master is an international uh, criminal, uh, it's a section six problem rather than section nine. It's the whole like, um, oh, it's it's our department, not yours. It's you know my jurisdiction. It's jurisdiction. jurisdiction. Yes, yeah. that's the word. You got no jurisdiction. And that's when the broken robot disagrees <laughs> strongly. It comes alive and claims that it is. Project 2501, it is alive, and it wants asylum. There you go, which is, and again, another big philosophical point of like, okay, we've created life. Does it then deserve the same rights as, like, all right, the nature of its birth was somewhat unorthodox, but it's still, you know, does it then deserve human rights? And, uh, it still takes that box. Bam. Oh, like you can, if, if you haven't watched this film, you can probably take away from this. It raises a lot, like, a lot of classic sci-fi and AI questions, one after another, like really just one-two combo punching you with these questions. Interspersing it with action, because that's when the cyborgs that Nakamura brought with him attack Yay! and grab the body and, and rush it out of the building and chuck it in the back of their car. Because, you know, if politics doesn't work... Smash and grab. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were going up against Aramaki. They had to expect politics wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, because you win. <laughs> he wins the game of politics. Aramaki's the sort of man you do not play diplomacy against because he'll win every time. Every time. Every time. You don't play. You know, it, like it'd be the most boring game of hunter with Aramaki because like there'd never be a war. There'd never be a civil war. It would just be year after year after year of peace because he just run that country so perfectly well. Sounds like a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's the benevolent dictator <laughs> if you're on the right side. Yeah, he's the boss you don't want to cross. <laughs> mm. yeah. Not least because he's like he's five foot tall, he's at perfect dick punching height. <laughs> oh yes, and that's where it ties into the action scene at the start of the film, actually. Yeah. 2501 was developed by the guy who was defecting in the first scene. And um, Section 6 are trying to cover up all the international implications of this. Yeah. Uh, okay. It is all it's, it's funny how the details of the investigation are not what I take away from this film. It is the philosophy and also the balls to wall. Awesome action! Yep. So this is where the film becomes a chase. But that's putting it quite lightly. It is an awesome chase <laughs> in which Bato rugby tackles a car. <laughs> <laughs> Bato is amazing. 
Love battle. And uh, helicopters chasing cars. Uh, they get to a warehouse where there's a giant tank. And by giant, we mean like fucking hell. It's it's a multiple. Well, they park the car under it, and the car is about a quarter of the size of the the central part of the body of the tank. Yeah, they fuck. Not not counting legs or cannons. Yeah, Masamunishiro loves tanks, especially like tank porn is a big thing in all of his manga. Especially, he he has this kind of yeah, his sort of classic tank shape, which is the the sort of uh, flat body with a giant bulbous bubble butt. (coughs) Multi-limbed. Yeah. That little tiny... Uh, so plot-wise, we're almost at the end. Yeah. That's the funny thing about this film, is actually if you break down the events... <laughs> Not a lot happens. It's, it's a very slow-paced film. It's split into three acts. It, it's the classic three-act structure. Very neatly split, with, in fact. Mm, with a brief intermission between each act. That's one of the things I found very interesting. I I broke this down and uh, studied it at university and wrote a big deconstruction essay about the semiotics of the film. And there are two lengthy periods uh, of, not silent, but dialogue-free footage with chants over the top of them. Very traditional Japanese chants. Um, And one is a a river ride through Hong Kong. Yes, because... It's where the movie and the manga and the anime all sort of differ a bit. It's the, I believe it is the movie that's set in Hong Kong, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, Standalone Complex is set in Japan. Yeah. Uh, but they are Japanese police in Hong Kong, so there's some interesting political ramifications there yeah, that they don't go into at all. Yeah, it's an imp- well, I guess the implication is, because it's, it is, out, it, like a lot of cyberpunk, um, it is set after a, another world war, isn't it? It well, is, it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess the implication is that Japan kind of has, did all right in that yeah, world. Yeah, it it's just got a few new holdings since then. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and I can't remember what the actual footage of the second one is. Is it the parade? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's like a That's right, it's, um, street parade. Yeah, it's a street parade. Um, through the Hong Kong streets, and again, the major is an observer as this chant, this this classical ancient chant plays over the top of it, and we break the acts apart. And so the first act is um, running up to the diving, I think, is the end of the first act. And the second act... um, Where does the second act end? I can't remember. That might be actually that might be the end of the second act. The first act might be after the garbage man sequence. Yes, yeah. Because it's and, and we see the classic space. basset hound in that as well. Oh, Gabe! <laughs> it's a signature. That's the isn't that the director of the movie rather than Masamunishiro? Isn't that a uh, trying to remember his oh, name? Oh, uh, Mamoru Oshii. No, Mamoru Oshii. Was it him? Yeah, Mamoru. Oshii. Oh wow! Okay, cool. I was I was taking a wild stab there. Uh, and one of his visual signatures is Basset Hounds. So they're now synonymous with Ghost in the Shell. (laughs) Which is fine by me. I love Basset Hounds. Because the Basset Hound was the garbage man's dog, and when he was in prison, uh, Bato looked after it. Uh, And then it it carries... That's where he gets Gabriel. Yeah, it carries on over into Ghost in the Shell standalone complex as well, I believe. And Uh, Yes, he has the dog there too. 
but yes, in this building, uh, it's it's a large, empty space with a big skylight. It's quite ornate. I'm not never been sure what the purpose of the building is. It's like um, an exhibition center, or um, it seems to be. Or like a, what I always thought of it was like a, a really old, decrepit, bombed-out mall. See, it feels to me like the lobby of a museum that is empty. Oh, yeah, because it's got that kind of old stonework thing and the, like, um, the, the big glass windows. And very significantly, a giant mural of the Tree of Life. Yes, that was the weird thing, which gets like peppered. Which gets shot to shit. shot, yeah. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth in terms of, of philosophical questions. Yeah. A giant robot mm. tank shooting the shit out of the Tree of Life. Not really much of a question, it's more of just a full-on statement. Yeah. Whilst a robot, this woman, like, backflips away. Yes, because basically the Major is in there, with it, with this tank. Woman versus giant tank. Hand-to-hand combat. But robot woman. Yeah. So... Uh, so... Uh, her strategy is largely run around. Don't get shot. Don't get shot. Let it run out of ammo. Yep. Classic. I believe she it literally just comes up with you had to run out at some point when yep. it finally does. It then grabs her head. Because uh, it's got yep. arms. See, see, see. Knife gun. Knife gun. Knife gun. Well, not before she tears her own arms off trying to rip the hatch open. Oh god, that fucking thing. We have like all the like muscle groups all individually bulging out and, and, and sort of displacing themselves as she t- Yeah. My 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 absolute like fascination with um arm anatomy came from this movie. Just my absolute just, like muscle groups and stuff in arms like it's like because you see that arm <laughs> come apart. Piece by piece. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, at this point she's the first on the scene. Bato is coming along in a helicopter with heavy weaponry, uh, but she's on her own, and so she's trying to tear this hatch open. Yeah, and it doesn't work. <laughs> very, very catastrophically, doesn't work. And now she's mostly armless. <laughs> and she's completely armless. Yeah. And yeah, it's about <laughs> to crush her head. And that's when the helicopters arrive. That's when Bato comes in for the save and pounds the tank from the helicopter into scrap. Yeah. So we have Bato. We have a very unwell Matoko. Oh, yeah. And in the boot of the car, we have the torso and head 2501 took res- a residency in. And what does Major Motoko Kusanagi want to do? Plug into yep. it. Let's dive straight in. Because, let's, let's face it, she's shown a certain tendency towards reckless action? It's, it's yeah, it's, it, you could pretty much sum up Motoko's every action with, I got this. <laughs> yeah. So reluctantly, Bato wires her up. And then we start to see everything from the torso's perspective. So we see the Major, we see Bato leaning over them, and we hear the final conversation between the Major and Project 2501. As the denouement, we keep saying show, don't tell, but this is very much a tell. It's an exposition. Yeah. As 2501 explains what he is, or what it is, and what it wants. 
And what it wants is to do what most living things want to do, propagate. To spread its seed. Oh, yeah. To continue to, to give itself some legacy. And it proposes that it merge with the major, that they become one. That they fuse their mind and their code and become a single entity that the world has never seen before. A man-machine interface. You could put it that way. I could. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, section six, aligning up a shot, sniper rifles, headshots, and boom, Kusanagi is shot in the head. And explodes, and that's her brain gone. They, yes, I do remember that bit. I Film think. over, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, your main character just, like, fucking just got splattered. a waking haircut. Yeah. Ka-chow. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, that was a good film. Yeah. Should we get it? Should, so, <laughs> next week, uh, we're going <laughs> to... There is just one last scene. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. And that's uh, a young girl sitting up in a, a chair, waking up. And Bato is there. And the chair complains. Uh, the chair complains? The girl complains. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's Ghost in the Shed. <laughs> Douglas Adams always. It's a mattress buttering in the corner. The girl complains about her body, and Bato apologizes that it was the only one he could find in the uh, less than a day since Kusanagi was shot in the head. And sure enough, the girl declares herself to not be Major Kusanagi or the Puppet Master. Something new, something different. And when asked what she's going to do and where she's going to go, she simply replies that the net is vast and infinite and walks out of the door. Mm. Take that for what it's worth in terms of whether that's terrifying or, or wonderfully eye-opening and, and wondrous. Both. Yeah. Terrifying. Oh, yeah. It's pretty terrifying. <laughs> and wondrous. Yeah, so we've given a pricey of the action, but... What we haven't given a sense of is how beautiful this film is. Oh god, it's stunning. I mean, especially for the time. Uh, I know that kind of, like, it shouldn't really be a sort of a qualifier, but it was with Akira as well. Um, yeah, the, the animation is just breathtaking, especially in the, the, the breakdowns between the acts. Yes, they're yeah, they're, they're stunningly beautiful, and the music is haunting. Yeah. Um, we, we've talked about Yoko Kano's music before on this show. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really powerful. And return to give us the soundtrack to the standalone complex, the Ghost in the Shell TV series, and that soundtrack is amazing. Uh, the, the technology on show here, like everything in this world has been designed and looks gorgeous, you know, from uh, keyboard operators whose fingers break out into many tiny fingertips. Uh, so can hit the ultimate touch typist. Uh, yeah, the computer graphics, somewhat simplistic for the time, but just clean and beautiful. The the cars. I, I think a lot of people involved in this were big fans of cars. Oh yeah, everything there looks great. The weaponry, of course, it's anime. There's a lot gone into the guns, into the, the robots. I love briefcase guns. I love the briefcase guns. The detail and the performance. This is one of the films I actually prefer to watch dubbed than subbed. Yeah, it's it's not a 
I mean, it's not a great dubbing job. It was it was nineties manga entertainment. Yes. Um, but the performance, but it's, it's by no means terrible. It's not that the, worse. The actual the performance behind it, the the sinking the words to the lips might not be a hundred percent, but the dialogue, the writing, and the performance are really really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Delivery. Barring obviously one reference to periods. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you thought that was pretty, oh boy. We'll do an episode on Ghost in the Shell Innocence, I'm sure. Yes. If Ghost in the Shell is an action film underpinned by complex philosophy, and it is, then Innocence is a film of complex philosophy. Interspersed with the occasional action scene. The second film hurt my head. Yeah. Fucking love it. I would see it. The, the second, the, the second film gets uh, not not a bad rap, but it, it doesn't get the love that the first one did. I mean, the first one was massively groundbreaking, but I've got to admit, I think I probably prefer Innocence. It mm, they're, they're very different. They're very films, different films. But for what I like from a film, I, don't get me wrong, Ghost in the Shell is incredible, and I will I will not say a bad word against it. It's absolutely fantastic. But man, innocence is just this whole other creature, um, and it it really brings a lot of those questions to the fore. And it looks into to the possibilities of a world where you create your own um, sort of world around you, and, and the way the net works with it, when everyone's sort of all connected up. Um, the, the endless mansion scene with is it is it Kim the um, the, the hacker? hacker who creates the logic maze? The lo- yeah, the, the way of representing a logic maze in an infinite loop. So many fucking layers. Oh, it's chilling. It's honestly creepy as fuck. And so, sorry, so well done. I think it does get a bad rap. Um, I I don't think it's looked on as as good a film as it is. Uh, But it's pretty clear why that is. Uh, You look at the original manga, the star of the manga is Motoko Kusanagi. And Bato is is her co-star. You look at the original Ghost in the Shell movie, it stars Motoko Kusanagi in Bato is the co-star. You look at Standalone yes. Complex, the same thing holds true. Even looking at Arise, which I have my problems with, the yeah. star is still a character called Motoko Kusanagi. It's not Motoko Kusanagi, but it's a character called Motoko but, Kusanagi. Yeah. Innocent stars Bato. The Major is barely present. Her... Her presence is incredibly important, but she is barely present. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, that's, in a way, a very interesting... Cause like, it's, it's, a big, it's a big gamble. Hmm. Huge. Hugely risky. And yeah. I think it paid off, but a lot of people didn't, and that's, I think, why it has the rep it does. Yeah, but we like Battle a lot. Oh, yeah. And I also like Togusa, who gets a bigger role nice. in Innocence. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Because he, he sort of even more becomes the everyman. Um, it's a lot more of a character-driven piece um, with looking at Tokusa and the, the not being um, upgraded, as it were, in this world. Um, and he's he's the one that literally doesn't notice anything in the in the world with uh, in the logic maze. It is just better sort of occasionally noticing these things and occasionally going, "Hey, wait, no, okay, it's, it's nothing." Um, it's also just absolutely stunning. As pure artwork, like, Innocence oh is, is streets ahead of Ghost in the Shell. 
Yeah. And, and Ghost of Shell's great, oh, it is. And it, especially when you look at it all the time. It, 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 it takes the, the, the majesty and the absolute masterwork that was Ghost in the Shell and then goes, hey, you know what? We could m- make this perfect. And it bloody, it just absolutely does. It, it just sort of perfects uh, a thing that was pioneer. It, it perfects the pioneer. There we go. How good the original Ghost in the Shell looks is really brought home by they, they released an edition called Ghost in the Shell 1.5, which was essentially the same film, but with certain scenes replaced with new CGI. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I remember that. They stand out as just really bad. <laughs> they're very noticeable and they're not good. Like, they're the best CGI that was available at the time they made it. But what they're replacing, just the cell animation they're replacing, is so much more attractive that you, you really notice the new stuff and go, oh, ah, that doesn't really belong. Yeah, it's, it's a bit jarring. It is. So uh, I, I own that on Blu-ray, but only because one of the extras on the disc was a 1080p high-definition copy of the original film. So I've watched the <laughs> actual film once, uh, and the extra that is the original film in high def many more times than that. But I think we've got here, yeah, uh, I've got Ghost in the Shell 2.0 and Ghost in the Shell Innocence on Blu-ray in my hands right now. We should do a movie night. Which is. <laughs> and if this sounds like it's up your street, then there is a whole two-season anime as well, Standalone Complex, which, whilst it's and less uh, philosophical, it has its, it has moments, its moments. Uh It is less philosophical, but it is all action all the time, and Deeply cyberpunk. It's it's more of a world building piece. Yes, it, it's more it, it's more all about um, building up this this universe of um, Ghost in the Shell, and also it's got the Tachikomas. You you can't go wrong with the Tachikomas. No one can dislike the Tachikomas. There are some deeply philosophical episodes. There's one in particular following a cyberized war vet who has taken work as a civilian pilot who looks at the other cyborgs around him trying to cling to their humanity and is disgusted by them, uh, by their mm. uh, pretense of eating. You know, it, it turns his stomach, and he becomes obsessed with the Major. It looks into uh, trauma to the cyberized. Uh, his notion of reality is collapsing. It's, it's a very interesting episode, and it really stands out because the way the TV show works is there is an overarching plot line. Sometimes. Yes. And in the first season, Standalone Complex, you have standalone episodes and complex episodes, and the complex episodes tell the plot, and the standalone are bottle episodes. They're their own little story. And this is probably the most jarring of the standalone episodes. There's, there is also the, uh, I don't know if it's the same one, um, my, my memory's all a bit fuzzy about it, but there is also the episode with um, Bato, Bato's sort of PTSD and history coming back to get him. Oh, that's a different time one. In the and that's, ooh, that's dark. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's all to do with like war crimes and, and, you know, how you can manipulate people. It's, it's a really dark, dark, dark it's, episode. It's got some connections to Strange Days, if you're, uh, if you're familiar with that film. Uh, I, it sounds familiar, but uh, I don't think both I have films seen it. feature the idea that uh, with 
this sufficiently advanced technology, you can film things from the victim's point of view and then oh, make others yes. experience that like in a very, very lifelike way. Yeah, except it's in terms of it's filming the uh, sensations as well as just the visuals exactly, and the sound. Yeah, so you're experiencing it. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's a very dark episode indeed. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a bit of philosophy, there's lots of bits of different sorts of philosophy, even in a series which is much more action-oriented. When we talk about how ubiquitous this technology is, the, the actual plot of the first season of the anime follows a hacker called the laughing man who is such a good hacker he can literally replace his own face with his logo at will on cameras and even in the vision of people around him so there are no eyewitnesses even or simply remove himself from people's sight and disappear because he can edit himself out live to the point that two of the most important people in the season are a couple of homeless guys who were never augmented. They're the only eyewitnesses, the only people who know what his face looks like. Because they haven't got bits of robot in their brain, so mm. he can't hack them. Yeah. And he has that little, it's the smiling face with the quote from, is it Catherine it Roy? Is. Yeah, which is a bit interesting when you start looking into the best hackers and the cyber brains and that sort of yeah. stuff. <coughs> that was designed by TerraTag, wasn't it? Sorry? The, the logo was designed by TerraTag. Oh, I don't, I don't know who TerraTag is. Tell us more. Yeah, they're a, a t-shirt company and prints and stuff. Um, I think they're UK-based. Huh. Uh, yeah, they do a lot of like the uh, Expo shirts and that kind of stuff. When Genki Gear don't do them. Uh, let's double check on that one. I nearly picked Joe Simon actually. Whilst I was in Japan, a little bobblehead, like really, really small little bobblehead, where the face is just replaced with the laughing man symbol. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, I want one now. Is that a whole table full of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should you buy it. You should have told him. Uh, I, I, you yeah. asshole. <laughs> we should. I just forgot to give it to him the last time I saw him. Because <laughs> I do that. I forget to give people things. I have presents for people for Christmas from like six years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I'm really bad at this. Fair enough. Anyway. Uh, unless anyone else has anything to add? Uh, go watch Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, do. Seriously, it's really good. Available on Blu-ray and now. Yeah. I still feel like we've actually done a really bad job of telling you how good this film is. Uh, we've told you what happens in it, but believe me, we haven't told you a fraction of why it's good. If you've listened to us and got, like, talk about a video game and gone, oh, okay, I'll go and give that a go, and you've been, like, you know... Pleasantly surprised. If you, I mean, uh, Ava, we've, we've, we've turned people onto Ava through this show now. Um, so babbling about it. And I felt like we didn't do enough of a good job of, of getting across Ava. So I want to do the, the sort of um, club. episode by episode book club on that. Um, but we've, we've turned people onto Ava. I mean, go, if you haven't seen Ghost in the Shell, 
I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have. It's, it's one of those things, you know, it's one of those movies, like, you know, when these people say everyone's seen it. I know obviously not everyone has seen it, but it's, it's iconic. This movie in, in geek culture. Yes. If, Go and watch it. If you it. have the remotest it's... interest in anime, in cyberpunk, in science fiction in general, especially in the realm of AI and ubiquitous computing, uh, or just action movies, you will find something in here for you. You'll find a lot in here yeah. for you because all of those things are thoroughly represented. And if you have any interest in the nature of humanity, reality, and what it means to be a person, this film is for you. And if you don't, that's very sad <laughs> and upsetting. It's <laughs> probably very apathetic. It's very comfortable. Well, that's true, yeah. Wow. Be fine. Just like, if, but, if, I mean, come if, on. If, if you're less interested in that, then look for... I am a nihilist. If you're less interested in that, then maybe look into Massive Moon Ashira's other work, uh, Ladies Go Diving and Give Dolphins Blowjobs. Okay. Although, funnily enough, that <laughs> was Ghost in the Shell. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm, good point. If you read the manga, you'll also get lesbian sex and dolphin sex. Yeah, yeah. Shiro See, that's is, you miss out, really, Shiro is an <laughs> odd, odd individual oh, or group that's, of people. That's another fun bit of trivia about Ghost in the Shell that I'll share before I depart, because this one makes me laugh. Okay. There is a scene in the manga of Ghost in the Shell where you see Motoko engaging in cyber, uh, cyber sex, which is a different thing in the Ghost in the Shell world. It's where you literally link yourself together and exchange sexual energy, basically. So you're you're fucking in your mind with two other yeah. women. Now, there's a whole law around the fact that uh, this physical connection of sex, of minds together, only works in a homosexual way because of the differences in brain chemistry between men and women. There's this whole law behind it. It's, it's bad science, <laughs> yes, but... But there's this complex, deep thing about um, uh, this direct connection of sexuality encouraged homosexuality because men were compatible with men in a way that they weren't with women and vice versa. And all of this law and reasoning comes down to uh, Shiro not wanting to draw dudes. Fair enough. He was yep. like, I wanted to draw multiple women. So I came up with this deeply complex reasoning why gay sex was better. Which is really weird when you, you look into Shiro's sort of, um, like, ex- well, I was explicitly adult works, I guess, it's a, but like a solely adult work, his porn. Because yes. um, there's a lot of dudes in that. I just, I guess in that scene, he didn't want to draw dudes. He didn't say he never wanted yeah, to draw like, dudes. I mean, it's like, that, that's all been published since then, so maybe he's, he's you know, he caught up, he's moved on. Yeah. He's changed, he's changed. Um, or maybe a different artist has killed that Shiro and taken his place in the grand five <laughs> mind of Masamune Shiro's. Also, mm. Masamune Shiro Wait, we don't know anything about Shiro. Nurses. <laughs> uh, nurses, really anyone in a uniform. That's true. And jungles. Okay, I was going to say uniforms, common, jungle fetish, not so much. Yeah, and giant horsemen. Specifically, it's the, the nurses in black that are slightly sadistic keep turning up in Shiro works. Yes, yeah. Even in standalone complex, the anime. Uh, there's even, well, I 
I mean, I'm thinking even in Tank Police, the, the Puma sisters dress up as um, nurses to um, sneak into a place. Yes, but the one in uh, Standalone Complex is actually a nurse. She just happens, her official uniform appears to be black fetish gear. It's very strange. Yeah. Well, why not? Oh, wait, yeah, Shiro, that's, that's why, specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, nurses for days. Yeah, Shiro's got, he knows what he likes. He does, and mm. he caters to his audience. Which is, I mean, really, he caters to himself. Yeah. It just happens that a lot of people would also agree with him. I Most suppose. great art- artists. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. We've got some calendars by, by Shiro up there. They're not like Norky calendars. So point <laughs> that out. Um, <laughs> he does some really, really cool, cool artwork with some very bizarre um, body, what's the word? Proportions. Oh. Yeah. He's a very, it's very skinny, long people seem to be his thing most of the time. Maybe short and wide people will be a challenge for him yeah. one day. I do always have porn by Shira Masumini, but, you know, it's difficult not to come across that these days. Yeah. Throw a stone. Yep. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. Okay, whilst Jack is throwing stones, and you know what they say about people who live in glass houses. <laughs> they shouldn't masturbate in the no. daytime. No. no. <laughs> All with the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel. I'm sorry. I feel I should should own it. That's a Bobo and joke. Nice. I, I can't. I can't take credit. Credit for that where one. it's due. It did make me laugh. <laughs> what? I said credit where it's due. Yes, absolutely. Funny man. Funny, funny, funny man. Go look him up. It's another recommendation we can give you today. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so you have been listening to World One Stage One. I have been Simon. I have been Jack. Or have I? I have been Irish. And I don't know if I'm Rob. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Ciao.